Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Nigeria is by far the most populous country in Africa, with an estimated 200 million people. It also has the continent's largest economy and the world's second largest film industry. Its soccer team is one of Africa's strongest. Writers like Chinua Achebe and musicians like Fela Kuti are world famous. But Nigeria's politicians and political movements don't enjoy the same renown. The political histories of countries like South Africa or the DRC are much better known in the wider world. The fact that Nigeria's culture is more famous than its political scene is rather ironic. Many of the country's leading cultural figures have also been politically engaged. Chinua Achebe wasn't merely a novelist. He was also a spokesman for the breakaway Republic of Biafra in the 1960s. Fela Kuti wasn't merely a musician. He came from a family of political activists. His mother, Funmalayo Ransom Kuti, was a pioneer of socialist feminism in Nigeria. Fela Kuti himself provoked the wrath of Nigeria's military regime when he released the hit single Zombie in 1976. Zombie, oh zombie. In revenge for Kuti's protest song, soldiers from the Nigerian army stormed his compound in 1977. They threw his mother out of a window and she died as a result of her injuries. Ever since independence, Nigeria has been the site of intense political struggles. The country has known several periods of military rule, but popular movements have retained their vitality in the face of tremendous odds. Most recently, we saw mass protests against the brutality of a special police force known as SARS, reported on here by Al Jazeera. At the Lake Itol Gate in Lagos, several different witnesses recorded footage of what appeared to be security personnel shooting at protesters who were blocking a major highway. A number of people were reported killed. It began as peaceful protests to demand an end to police brutality. And for two weeks, the government struggled but failed to calm protesters. Their demands, among others, include far-reaching reforms of the police and the prosecution of officers accused of extrajudicial killings, torture and disappearances. Nokia is going through. Since we have been protesting, we have not had any reasonable no, results. So we want out Buhari to come and address us. If not possible in Asorong, you should come down to Lagos and address the citizens. That's what we can do. We have been trying, we have been crying every day so that they can hear our, they can hear our voice, but they, they don't want to listen to us. Our guest today is Adam Meyer. Adam is the author of a book about the history of Marxism in Nigeria. We were also joined by Baba Aie, a Nigerian trade union activist who works for the international trade union PSI. Baba spoke about the development of the NSARS movement. I began by asking Adam about the importance for Nigeria's politics of the regional divide between a predominantly Muslim North and a predominantly Christian South, and between ethnic groups such as the Hausa Fulani, the Yoruba and the Igbo. Obviously today there is such a thing as a Nigerian identity. Nigeria is not a legal fiction anymore. It is very meaningful. It is a regional power. The right wing 
and adherence to ethnic causes would, however, tell you that the North and the South living together could be as if Spain and Morocco were enclosed in a single country. Now, this is not entirely fair. Yeah? Even though the North was characterized by an aristocratic tradition with equestrian warriors, uh, the South, there was a more, one could say, democratic culture. In terms of religion, it's different. In Yoruba land, there are families that are mixed in terms of Christianity and Islam. One brother is Muslim, the other is Christian. This is something that happens in Nigeria. This does not mean that the 1954 Littleton Constitution that established regions didn't start a very problematic political history of jockeying for resources between regions. Even boards of universities played this out. Azikiwe put Igbos, we must say, uh, sometimes uh, on, on those boards. It has been suggested that uh, Chief Awolowo, although he was uh, incomparably more radical than Azikiwe ever was, that he might have promoted Yoruba politicians or Yoruba actors. The Northerners promoted Northerners. The railway trade and mobility, however, were already present, uniting these regions even in the 1950s. Now, in the 60s, riots started and violence started. Attacks on Igbo stores in northern cities, on the Middle Belt people, the Tiv felt extremely marginalized in the Middle Belt, uh, minorities in any of those regions felt marginalized. In the north, we may say that Kanuris were assimilating to a Hausa mainstream, but uh, in the south, uh, for instance, Ibibios or the Aquaibom might have feared Ibo domination. Yorubas and Ibos have such a difficult relationship in many cases, that this is something that regularly surfaces in discussions of uh, Nigerian interethnic relations. In 1960 October, Nigeria became independent within the Commonwealth with the Queen of England as head of state. 1963 October, it became a republic with a president and the Westminster system. This will stretch to 1979 when Nigeria changed to a copy of the U.S. presidential model with obviously modifications. Now, there is a feeling that colonial Britain might have favored northerners and perhaps Igbos to some extent in the south, although there were Biafran Igbo Marxists, an entire school of Biafran Marxists also. Youth organizations and radical organizations were initially even 
not quite certain whether to organize on a West African basis or a national Nigerian basis before the war. It was within the Nigerian youth movement the result of Ajo Davis's work and, and radical agitation that this national framework was actually adopted in the first place. Now, in the mid-60s, anti-Ibo riots were all over the north. Chief Awolowo's party members would overrun universities, and Ibo actors were planning a coup, which uh, finally happened with uh, uh, Agwe Ironsi in 1966, who eliminates regions. It was a military coup. And the Prime Minister Abuakar Tafawa Balewa of Northern Extraction is killed. Azikiwe is killed. Awolowo is only let out of prison to quell the Agbakoya Parapo, the peasant revolt, which had a Yoruba regional base. After some months comes a counter-coup, a, one might say, Hausa Fulani-dominated counter-coup that installs Jakubu Govon, a Christian politician from the north, as head of state. Jakubu Govon is friendly to northern interests, but after the civil war, he will be careful to include some Igbos. There was reconciliation and there is, in 1970, full amnesty, after which Jakubu Govon would spend time in London in exile after 1975. During the first decade of Nigerian independence, the war in Biafra nearly shattered the unity of the Nigerian state. How did that war begin and why did it end in the way that it did? Biafra is a case when a major ethnic group, one of the three major ethnic groups of Nigeria, decided to attempt to secede from the federation. The eastern region, under Chukwemeka Odumegu Ojuku, lieutenant colonel of the Nigerian army and later general of the Biafran army, did not accept uh, Yakubu Gowon as uh, head of state in 1967. So in May, uh, he declares the Republic of Biafra. Now, there were diplomatic efforts to solve this problem. In uh, Ghana, the Aburi Accord, the Nyamey Peace Conference, um, the Addis Ababa Conference under Emperor Haile Selassie, those all tried to settle the conflict via diplomatic means. It didn't work. 6th of July, finally, Jakub Govan declared war um, on the eastern region and attacked Biafra with the federal army. The novelist Chinua Achebe became one of the most prominent supporters of the Biafran cause. In this interview recorded during the war, Achebe rejected the idea that his people must remain part of a unitary Nigerian state. What do you think of the reaction abroad in the outside world to the situation here in Biafra? 
Well, to begin with, um, one was very much um, disappointed uh, in the you know in the early stages of the lack of uh, appreciation of the issues. I mean, one ran into arguments about the importance of federations and that sort of thing, and this I find extremely infuriating. Uh, that in the face of what has happened and was happening, uh, that um, the argument should turn on, on the virtues of a federation, uh, or unity. Uh, now it seems to me to be terribly wrong to put systems of government over uh, the welfare of, of, of men. It seems to me that governments are, are designed to, to serve and preserve uh, men and society. And here you had a government which not only did not serve or preserve uh, a significant section of, of, uh, of uh, its citizenry, but went out of its way to join in their destruction. And uh, still people talk about the virtues of, of uh, unitary government or unity or federation. I think this is, this is uh, outrageous. Achebe's final book before his death, published in 2012, was titled There Was a Country, A Personal History of Biafra. The number of deaths. Now, obviously, historical statistics is one of the most disputed sub-field of history. In any case, a minimum of one million victims died and perhaps the maximum is uh, three million. There were, even before the war started, about 80 to 100,000 Igbo victims of ethnic uh, pogroms in the North and even West. There was an exodus of Igbo people from these regions. There was incredible destruction of property. The blockade of Port Harcourt itself killed perhaps as many as half a million people. There were genocidal incidents. And in terms of how the world reacts, we see that France, Portugal, Spain, racist Rhodesia, apartheid South Africa, and the Vatican either officially recognized or openly helped Biafra. France and Nigeria obviously are competitors in West Africa. Uh, their competition is... Uh, basically centered on who it is that's the most important regional power, as France is quite the neocolonial power in West Africa even today, and Nigeria obviously is very much aware of this fact. So in any case, it's, it's uh, on a realist uh, international relations basis, it's very easy to explain why uh, France stood on the Biafra side, Portugal, for perhaps similar considerations, the Vatican City 
so Catholics being attacked. Now, what was the British reaction? What was the U.S. reaction? The U.K. tacitly backed uh, Biafra uh, in the beginning, secretly. Uh, France and Portugal also sent weapons. And um, there was an arms embargo against the federal forces. Officially, the U.K. was with federal Nigeria and there was a wait-and-see approach, and towards the end of the war, the UK sides with, with the Federals. The Soviets were the ones that came to the help of Federal Nigeria, given the arms embargo. So it was with Soviet arms that the Federals fought the Biafrans, and Egypt also sent bombers. The USSR calculated that this was something similar to the Congo case. Famously, in Congo and with Lumumba, uh, there was secessionist uh, forces in Congo tied with extractive uh, economic interests. The Soviets uh, didn't want uh, such a thing to happen and decided to side with federal Nigeria, despite the fact that federal Nigeria was not at all friendly to Soviet foreign policy interests in general. Indeed, after the war, very soon federal Nigeria will make diplomatic uh, gestures to indicate specifically that they did not become Soviet-friendly elements, a diplomatic visit to Beijing two days after a visit to Moscow, and so on and so forth. Shell BP instituted an oil embargo through tankers. It put Piafra at a great disadvantage. Oil facilities already by late July were captured by the Federals. The Nigerian army wasn't particularly well-trained in the civil war. The Biafran army was even less, perhaps, well-trained. There were mercenaries on both sides. There's a famous um, case of Lynn Garrison with the Federals, a Canadian mercenary. There's Rolf Steiner, formerly with the Nazi war machine, who... Later, he became one of the models for the the Dogs of War, actually, by Frederick uh, Forsyth. Receives Biafran citizenship, becomes a Biafran hero. Anyway, fought as a mercenary on that side. In 1970, before final Nigerian victory, Ojuku fled to Côte d'Ivoire, which was, of course, a conservative stronghold and the French-friendly stronghold at the time. Now, in the West, the Biafra War starts a very interesting development in terms of NGOs. Médecins Sans Frontières was formed based on that experience from Biafra. Um, This was the first case, really, when... Western TV sets showed starving African children. 
and it started these uh, terrible stereotypes in terms of broadcasting. It, however, also started a lot of positive efforts in terms of combating malnourishment, death of civilian populations in war in Africa. In the following CBS report from 1968, an Irish priest talks about the relief effort in Biafra. Not enough food is being flown in, not enough grown, and for many, what there is, is now just too late. This bush clinic is run by Father Kevin Diony. After 14 years in Africa, he and fellow missionaries were ordered to leave Biafra in 1967 by the Irish ambassador. They stayed, as did Protestants of other nationalities. And they, in the main, have been responsible for keeping Biafra from starving to death. How hard has the war been on the Igbo civilian population? How many people have died, would you think, Father? I would think that we've gone into the second million. I am not a statistician, and it's very hard to talk about millions, but I, I think that it's, uh, uh, according to the experts here, I think that they've gone into the second million. And uh, they have suffered incredibly. And this is the one uh, big argument that I would put forward as one of the reasons why they, they, are, they want to survive on their own and they want to live on their own. They could not have suffered so long and so much without having a purpose. You've written about a distinctive Nigerian tradition of Marxism. How did Marxism develop in the country and how did Nigerian thinkers and activists apply those ideas to the particular conditions of Nigerian politics and society? Absolutely. Nigerian Marxism is, was, is, still is a fantastic and largely homegrown phenomenon. The fact that the USSR was obviously sending classical Marxist literature in the 40s is something that gave way very, very soon to local Marxist theory. In the 1950s, up to independence, flag independence, as they say, Marxism in Nigeria was strictly illegal. It counted as sedition. Now, upon independence, especially from 1963, legal organizing became possible. The Socialist Workers and Farmers Party was set up under Tunji Otebe with TIV support in terms of uh, the strongest regional base of the party. From 1966 to 75, uh, Marxist party formation was illegal. Marxist unions were, or Marxists in the unions were tolerated. But in 1976 comes the Adabi tribunal that purged Marxists. Imoudu, Basi, Wahab Goodluck uh, had to go to jail. And in 1978, the new amalgamated and only legal trade union umbrella organization, the Nigeria Labor Congress, is set up. From 1979 to 1983, party formation is legal, but instead of, as it were, orthodox Marxist or Marxist-Leninist parties, 
We have the People's Redemption Party as the most important radical voice. Balarabi Musa on uh, the People's Redemption Party's platform became Kaduna state governor from 1979 until 1981 when he was impeached. And Abu Bakr Rimi became Kano state governor. So there were some cases when Marxist-inspired politicians won elected office. They went against some feudal dues and taxes. So they faced incredible opposition at the street level also, apart from impeachment, because uh, the aristocratic leadership of these places simply decided to employ their thugs on these elected governors. 1983 to 1992-1993, this was very problematic for party formation because uh, these were the years when Nigeria was under Muhammad Buhari and then IBB, Ibrahim uh, uh, Babangida, as uh, military uh, head of state and then as president. Party formation was highly problematic except in 1986 when a government-sponsored socialist party is set up. This was a moment when Babangida, who, General Babangida, who is uh, and was and still is a uh, very crafty politician, likes to call himself the evil genius. In any case, General Babangida decided to play uh, Democrat and sponsored uh, um, the setting up of a rightist and a leftist party, the leftist party being a socialist, social democratic party. He also included some Marxists on his political bureau, which was a very interesting idea. 1993 to 1999, Marxist parties, this is uh, the times of... uh, the dictator Sani Abacha, even the NLC was illegal most of the time, and it was extremely problematic for Marxists, as well as uh, most other people. Sani Abacha was, of course, very famous for executing the Ogoni Nine and Ken Saroviva. Uh, he also went after dissent in any way or form. Uh, Law and order situation in the country was uh, terrible. And uh, he made Nigeria an international outcast with his dictatorial outlook. In 1995, the dictatorship of Sani Abacha executed the environmental campaigner Ken Sarawiwa. Sarawiwa had been a spokesman for his Agoni people in the Niger Delta. He accused the Nigerian state and the oil company Shell of trampling on their rights. The Abacha regime accused him of inciting murder and put him on trial. In the following clip from a British documentary, Sarawiwa speaks from the dock to deny the charges against him. There is no possibility whatsoever that I or Mossad would ever have planned any such action. And I will forever disavow it, no matter what any forum decides upon. I appeal to you, my Lord, 
for only one thing. The Ogoni people have suffered tremendously in this country. They have made tremendous contributions to this country. Niger Delta itself is in serious trouble. We need every assistance that we can get. Despite an international campaign, Sarawiwa was hanged with eight fellow activists in November 1995. The executions provoked outrage and led to the isolation of Sani Abacha on the world stage. Shell later paid out $15 million in a settlement after the family of Ken Sarawiwa sued the company in a US court. Now, from 1999 or 2000, party formation is legal. Even Marxist parties, it's, it's completely legal to set up Marxist parties in Nigeria. But there are rules that make it difficult for these parties to operate. The rules stipulate that every state must be represented, and obviously Nigeria has 36 states and the federal capital territories, so so it requires a lot of money. All election-related activities require incredible amounts of money in the Nigerian context, and the legal stipulations are built in in a way that makes sure that a lot of money is required. Now, the questions and problems that Nigerian Marxism deals with are really as many as uh, there are problems in Nigeria. So I will just mention a few. One of them is Famously, whether there is a working class in Africa, there are some radical post-colonial thinkers, a lot of uh, intellectuals uh, that uh, were and are of the opinion that anyone who can eat rice and drink tea is elite already. Most Nigerian Marxists would, would disagree with this. In Nigerian Marxism, the understanding is that there is a working class in in the African context and in the Nigerian context. Traditional farmers are in this working class. Industrial laborers are obviously in this working class. Farmhands, hospital workers, market women, petty traders, teachers, people in the informal sector, etc. The state is still after 34 years of austerity and financialization and privatization, is still the biggest employer in Nigeria in the formal sector. So obviously only a minority of people are employed by the formal sector. So how is it that organized labor and trade unions and Marxists in these trade unions are important in the country and uh, trade unions punch above their weight. Uh, Leo Zelik has, uh, I think, a fantastic insight about the South African case, which is uh, similar in this sense. People in employment have influence in, in their townships in South Africa beyond their very persons, uh, people who live in those compounds, people that share food with these organized workers, will be influenced by the political outlook of the 
people in formal employment. So again, the numbers are something else. The numbers are difficult to establish here. Some sources quote there are four to five million organized workers in Nigeria. I've seen all sorts of numbers. By the way, the very question of how many people live in Nigeria is open to speculation. The Economist famously advised uh, using um, uh, satellite images to come up with scientific approximations, which is shocking. The reason for this is because governors are allocated oil monies, financial resources, according to their population numbers. And they are incentivized to basically lie about their population data, which they do. So another theoretical question. Is there a bourgeoisie? in Nigeria. If there is, what kind of bourgeoisie is this? Uh, Ola Oni and Bade Onimode followed uh, Andre Gunderfrank uh, in calling it a lumpen bourgeoisie. Others think it's a uh, comprador uh, type bourgeoisie. Others talk of uh, a petty or bureaucratic uh, bourgeoisie. There is um, an analyst, a uh, friend of mine in Italy, who Cause the significant segments of the Nigerian bourgeoisie, the cultist bourgeoisie, because of the importance of campus cults on Nigerian politics, unfortunately, since the mid-1990s. Other theoretical questions include whether oil has crowded out investments in the agricultural sector in Nigeria or, or not. This is something that the World Bank and classical economics treats as an established fact. And very interestingly, it was Yusufu Balausman, a northern Marxist historian, who establishes in an amazing study that the massive investment, that actually massive investment went into development in agriculture in Nigeria, even after the mid to late 1970s, when oil became so important. But all this money didn't increase productivity because it was and is looted. And there are mechanisms how how this works. Uh, Now, in terms of the reasoning, We can see that the real economy in Nigeria is in perpetual crisis since 1983. At the same time, financial industry, the the petroleum industry, banks, multinational corporations are doing very well. And there is incredible capital flight from Nigeria Famously, there's a Porsche um, shop in uh, Lagos, is it? Ever since the early 80s, we are dealing with a very neoliberal framework. According to Yusufu Balausman's uh, analysis, even back in the 1970s, it wasn't the parastatals, the the state-owned or partly state-owned companies that caused the budget deficit, but the private 
companies, not because of anything else, but because of fraudulent practices that they resorted to. Now, Marxism in general, in terms of sociology of these authors and uh, these intellectual circles, most of it came out of wage employment and the modern sectors of the economy, the railways, for instance, or healthcare in the case of the trade unions. But in the case of feminist socialism and radical feminism, it came out of the circles of market women when those circles met with representatives of the intellectual elite of the country. You mentioned there the relationship between the socialist feminist movement and Nigeria's market women, and that brings in the role of Fumalayo Ransom Kuti, who was a major political activist in the 20th century. She was also the mother of Fela Kuti, the famous musician. Could you tell us something about the political record of that family in Nigeria? Extremely important radical family up to our days, up to 2021. Fela Kuti's father was a principal of a very important high school. He was even consulted on decolonization by the British authorities. And all of all Fumilayorenzo Kuti, FRK, as sometimes she was called, um, Fela's mother, studied in the UK, which was extraordinarily rare at, at, at that point of time. If we look at the general population and what people could afford. So these are representatives of the elite. The Abel Kuta Ladies Club from 1946 started admitting market women, challenged the local aristocracy, the British appointed local royal in Abel Kuta. Uh, FRK later took a role, a leading role in the Women's International Democratic Federation in East Germany, um, Berlin, is where the center of the Women's International Democratic Federation was. So this was a pro-Soviet organization. What uh, FRK did was, basically she sat on the board of pro-Soviet organizations and she made sure to also sit on the boards of uh, pro-Western organizations in Nigeria and elsewhere to make sure that she had a maneuvering space, which which, uh, she thought was uh, really important. She got the Lenin International Peace Prize in uh, 1970-71. This prize is uh, one of the top prizes that the Soviet Union uh, would bestow on anybody. Fidel Castro got it, Allende, Angela Davis, Pablo Picasso, Nelson Mandela, uh, Dubois. So really the biggest names in uh, black radical and southern radical circles. And um, FRK was one of them. Now, On what basis did she build this kind of radical women's organization? It's perhaps surprising what we would think was a solid patriarchal social formation and how come she was able to set up a radical organization at such an early point of time. 
what's important here is that in some areas in Nigeria, especially we are talking about the south, but uh, even to some extent in some places in the north, women had not only important positions in society, but had parallel political structures and roles in those societies. So political and economic roles. So the markets were ruled by women. The shrine was run by women. Some market women had traditional titles. Still, uh, this is a practice. And in 1929, the famous uh, so-called women's war happened. It it was a women's revolt uh, when um, Warren chiefs were installed by the British colonial authority and, and, and women lost their political power. Basically, the British policy was even called the best man policy. So the whole idea of uh, giving, uh, respecting the traditional political authority of women and power structures that women had had was not entertained by the British. There's an excellent book on the so-called the colonial parlance, called it the Abba riots, the Ogumuwani, the women's war. Now, FRK tapped into these traditions and organized women, became very famous, uh, very, very fast, for democracy also. So meaningful democracy, obviously, not just uh, elections, but in and under military regimes in the 70s specifically, this meant anti-military and pro-democracy agitation and activism. So she drew the ire of the military administrations of the day, not only uh, local royals, but the federal army decided that uh, Fela and his mother were uh, a political problem. She also agitated against the generals and the members of the military becoming very rich. So this added impetus also made uh, the military very unhappy, which resulted in her defenestration. Uh, that's, That's how she died. She was thrown out of the window of of her son's uh, compound and she died of, of those wounds soon afterwards. The family today is incredibly active as human rights lawyers, as cultural icons, as uh, important uh, personalities in Nigeria and elsewhere. Now, there has not been anybody in this whole politics in Africa, only two people have walked on the streets to follow people to where they are going. Nkrumah and my mother. What are you talking about? All this nonsense that you have hanging around here. They sit down in cars, man. This government threw my mother out of window. Mrs. Fumilayo Anikola Kukuti, who fought her blood for this country on the streets. Fela Kuti and his comrades brought the coffin of his mother to the gates of an army barracks in Lagos. He later sang about the episode in his song, Coffin for Head of State. 
the bad, bad, bad things. Waka, waka, waka. Then the do, do, do. Waka, waka, waka. Then steal all the money. Waka, waka, waka. Then kill many students. Waka, waka, waka. Then burn many houses. Waka, waka, waka. Then burn my house too. Waka, waka, waka. Then kill my mama. Waka, waka, waka. So I carry the coffin. Waka, waka, waka. I waka, waka, waka. Waka, waka, waka. Move better of the people. Waka, waka, waka. Then waka, waka, waka. Fela obviously is and was a major culture like globally. Today his songs, his political protest songs are inspiring echoes. And this is something new. For many decades, there was fewer protest songs coming out of Nigeria. The rapper uh, falls with This Is Nigeria is someone who came out with a very powerful protest song. By the way, um, the This Is Nigeria was inspired by Chadish Gamino's uh, This Is America. And This Is America was in turn produced, co-produced partly by the Nigerian Marxist social scientist uh, Claude Ake's son. So these, these are interesting, interesting things. So not only <laughs> did uh, yeah, um, American radicalism inspire Nigerian radical and socialist musicians, but Nigerian socialists and Marxists inspired U.S. rap also and U.S. Uh, radicalism. This is Nigeria. Look how I'm living up. Look how I'm living up. Everybody be criminal. This is Nigeria. Look how we living up. Look what we eating up. Everybody be criminal. This is Nigeria. Just because I'm on TV now. Person we don't get work is checking to see if my watch is original. This is Nigeria. Where that Madam Philomena? Money vanished for your office, 36 million, you tossing an animal. This is Nigeria. Never any recession. When looters and killers and stealers are still contesting election. Politicians with thieves and billion and billion, you know they go prison. Police station, they close by six. Security reason. And then there's Burner Boys, Monsters You Made. And Monsters You Made is is perhaps the best way to describe how the neo-colonial nexus and, on the one hand, and the security problems of Africa in general and Nigeria in particular are connected. So anyone who wonders about what this connection looks like on the ground I advise everyone to check. It's it's on YouTube. It's a fantastic, fantastic song. 
And this is something new that we see protest songs that become international hits in these in these last couple of years. Nigeria has now experienced two unbroken decades of civilian rule and regular transitions from one president to another through the ballot box, which is by far the longest period that the country has known since independence. How do you account for that and what difference do you think it's made to Nigerian political life? Yes, it is the single longest, by far the longest period of democratic rule in the country's history. This is the Fourth Republic now, and the Fourth Republic uh, seems to be more resilient. One aspect to this, I think, is that liberal democracy became an international norm in the 1990s. Uh, much has been written about democratization in Africa, in uh, Southern Africa, obviously, but also uh, East Africa, North Africa with uh, the Arab Spring. But in the 1990s already, South Africa, globally, Eastern Europe's 1989, the fall of the USSR, democratization, it's become an international norm and a kind of dictatorship that Sani Abacha was running has become considerably more difficult to maintain. Now, what's the content like? We have to say this and obviously any analyst is going to to say this with a lot of sadness that democracy is more in form than in content in the Nigerian case since the year 2000. Yes, President Obasanjo was democratically elected, but obviously he's a former military head of state. And very interestingly, not only uh, did he have two terms as a democratically elected president, after being a military head of state earlier, Muhammadu Buhari also provides another very obvious case of a former general, a former military dictator being elected president of federal Nigeria. Since uh, 2015, Muhammadu Buhari is the president. Prior to this, he ruled Nigeria between uh, 1983 and 1985. His rule ended with a, with another coup by Ibrahim Badamsi Babangida. Now, Babangida himself is not unimportant in today's Nigerian political and economic system. Uh, these, these former rulers, military rulers of, uh, of Nigeria, maintain what is sometimes called the Oga system. They shape and define what happens in the country in major ways. What also happens during, between, before, after elections is 
Godfatherism, voter intimidation, thuggery, issues with the press, the freedom of the press is routinely threatened. There are all sorts of shenanigans with ballot boxes, prevention of voting, etc., 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 etc. But on the other hand, the political life of the country is extremely lively. The press is also extremely lively. So I would personally see The Guardian, The Nation, and many other representatives of Nigeria's written press as reasons why democracy survived somehow in the country. Also, in terms of the left, we see a conscientization. We see that the left became very sensitive, really sensitive in the 1990s to human rights issues. And there is more sensitivity to ethnic issues, women's issues, the kind of Soviet-inspired Marxism that uh, we see in the 1970s when Nii Onyororo would openly advocate for a one-party system and the People's Army and uh, Olhoz-type agriculture, those kinds of political economists are uh, gone. So the left today is a democratic left, is at the same time a very committed movement, and it's incredible, and Baba will give us the details of this, to see how In the last couple of years, two years really, Nigerian trade union organizing and the organizing of a bona fide leftist party could somehow happen. In the early 2000s, it was a recurrent issue within trade union circles that the NRC and others tried to set up a labor party It never really worked. There were smaller leftist parties today, and I believe Baba is going to relate the details of this. There is a much more hopeful, much more radical scenario with Chovore, with CORE, with Revolution Now, and with organizing towards a more democratic, truly popular democratic Nigeria. So, Baba, if I can come to you on that final question, how did the NSARS movement of recent months develop? And do you think it's going to have a lasting impact on Nigerian politics? Yes, definitely. It will have a lasting impact. As uh, you probably know, SARS was the special anti-robbery squad. And uh, the, the immediate ignition of the protest was the killing of a young man which went viral and uh, led to people calling for an end to that uh, elite unit of the police force, which is known for its brazen, torturous, meanness and ruthlessness. The Amnesty International did a report in 2016 that spoke to the kind of torture they used to extract confessions, quote and unquote, 
you know, and um, most youth have either had direct experiences with them or knew someone that had had such because they had moved from targeting armed robbers to targeting online scammers in the 21st century. It was formed in 1992. But the fact of the matter is, rather than catch online scammers, SARS itself was a scam because they would target, there was a lot of profiling. I mean, uh, youth with dreadlock, youth with tattoos were targeted, youth with iPhones, youth with laptops were targeted as being supposedly scammers. But the fact of the matter was this. The real scammers would very quickly give them money and they would let those scammers be. But if you didn't have money to give, you were in trouble. You could end up locked up, tortured, confessions extracted, and then your relatives will have to pay through their nose to get you out. And in some instances, because when they get hold of iPhones and all that, they also check your bank details. People have been known to have been killed after they had had them, you know, withdraw huge amounts of money. But while SARS was the main target, police brutality in general, and the regime of injustice, you know, worsening conditions of the youth. One out of every two Nigerian youth is either unemployed or grossly underemployed. And matters have gone from bad to very terrible. Tens of thousands of people, mainly young people, have been laid off jobs in the wake of COVID particularly in the aviation, uh, hospitality, and related sectors. So there was mass hunger and mass anger in the land, and that killing uh, by SARS, which was a well-hated uh, unit, was just a spark in an inflammable context. Now, part of what this shows is that to draw from Franz Fanon, the current generation out of the obscurity of its immediate past has discovered its mission and is keen on fulfilling it. Because just a few weeks before that, there had been a lot of condemnation in radical circles about just how not ready to fight the current generation of youths because they were focused more on Big Brother Niger you know, more pop music and all that. So it was like, oh, this is unlike the earlier generations of Nance when Nance was Nance and so on and so forth. But then there are also two other elements that uh, are important for understanding the context within which the answer started and also some of the shape it took. One is the consistent trend of betrayal of the mass movement by the trade union bureaucracy. The trade unions in Nigeria are quite powerful. They have organized strikes in defense of the mass of the people against increases in prices, particularly of fuel pump price. You know, but they have been the voice of the people in several ways. But they have the habit of fighting and then making rotting deals. But in this case, 
On the 28th of September, there was supposed to have been a general strike. The general strike was to have been a protest against sharp increase in fuel pump price and about a 100% increase in electricity tariffs earlier in September. And lo and behold, around 3 a.m. on that same day, after an overnight meeting between the trade union bureaucracy and the federal government, the strike was called off without even recourse to the governing organs of the trade union bodies. So there was that anger and disappointment. Then the second element that needs to be put in perspective has been the rise of the Coalition for Revolution over the past year and a half. The Coalition for Revolution is aligned with the African Action Congress, a radical reformist party which took part in the last elections in 2019. And uh, the campaign of the party and the coalition since 5th of August last year has been for revolution now. On the 5th of August, it organized a nationwide demonstration, including demonstrations in half of the states across the country. But quite significantly, over 5 million people searched for the word revolution on Google on that day. It, it, it sent home a message of much more than just fighting for reforms or fighting for total liberation. And since then, there had been series of protests organized by CORE, that's Coalition for Revolution, the last of which was on the 1st of October, uh, just before uh, the NSAS protests. Now, these two things contributed to the supposedly leaderlessness of the movement, of that's the NSAS movement, largely because on one hand there was disappointment with the trade union bureaucracy and believe that when you have such leaders, they can be brought to be co-opted. But there was also within that some form of attack on the more by the more moderate sections within the NSAS movement against the more revolutionary coalition for revolution elements. In fact, in some of the sites of the NSAS protest, people on the right wing of the movement insisted that, look, we are here only to fight against SARS, not for revolutionary demands. But in a non-sectarian manner, core activists across the country kept advancing the argument that you can't separate police brutality from the systemic nature of exploitation and oppression, which generates police brutality in fact, which is what makes the need for policing what it is. And gradually, the demands of the movement shift more and more leftwards. From answers, it moved to end bad governance, it moved to end injustice. And within the demonstrations, our slogans for Buhari must go. Buhari is the head of state, the head of the regime, found echo. So this all contributed to the fear of the state as well 
that look, if this mass movement goes on for one more week, it is likely to lead to something much more revolutionary. And they baited the movement in blood on the 20th of October. But the repression has not dampened the enthusiasm and commitment to revolutionary struggle of core activists yeah. and a large swath of Nigerian youths. Many thanks to Baba Aie for giving us that account of the NSARS movement in Nigeria. And many thanks to Adam Meyer for explaining so much about Nigerian politics to us. If you want to know more about Nigeria's popular movements, Adam's article for Jacobin will be an excellent starting point. It's titled, How Nigeria's Left Helped Shape the Country's History.